Welcome to Story Conversations. I'm Simon Arrowsmith and with me as always is... Susan Griffin. Hi, Susan. Hey, Simon. Hey, okay. So excited as... I mean, we're always excited oh, to speak yeah. to our guests, but today is, is another special one. Um, who have we got joining us? Well, our um, guest today is an amazing... Um, well, an amazing person. Um, her <laughs> name is Georgia Stitt. Um, she will tell you, she will share with you that she is a quote-unquote musician, but it's such mm. a broader um, moniker, really. Yeah. Um, she's a real multi-hyphenate in the world of musical theater. Um, she's a composer. She's a music producer. Well, you know what? Let's That's just talk. <laughs> let's just have a conversation. That sounds Georgia. good. Okay, let's go for it. Georgia, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we were more than excited uh, when you agreed to be on Story Conversations podcast. Um, the way we, we like to start the conversation is by asking our guests if you could share a little bit about your own origin story. Now, your bio is unbelievably impressive. You know, the industry has a term multi-hyphenate, and, you know, that's, uh, that struck us as a way to explain your life as a composer, a lyricist, a musical director, a pianist, a songwriter, a, a music producer, a a, a, an academic, a, a teacher, a coach. You've got advanced degrees from places like NYU and in musical theor- music theory from and composition from Vanderbilt. You teach. You've, you're on the faculty. Uh, you've been on the faculties of uh, UCLA. Um, I'm sorry, University University of Southern California, LA, Pace. And now Princeton, lucky Princeton. <laughs> but where, where did it all start? Where? Well, uh, Susan, it's so interesting to hear someone read your resume, resume back to you <laughs> because I hear that and I think, well, it certainly is impressive on paper, but, but when you live it, it just feels like the daily grind, getting up and doing the work. <laughs> and I say that... Uh, you know, on my passport, it says, what is your occupation? And it says musician, um, which is not impressive when you're, in, you know, when someone, when someone says to you, what do you do for a living? And you're like, I'm a musician. I think they make assumptions that you're like, oh, are you out of work? Are you? It must be so hard <laughs> to have that gigging life, the instability. And I think all of the skills that you listed are 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 things that fall under the umbrella of being a professional musician. In order to work consistently, you have to learn how to do a lot of things. Um, and and in terms of my origin story, I'll say I uh, I was a little girl who liked to play the piano, and and liked to play the piano more than anything else. So I you know when I tell the story, I say I was the girl who came home from school, threw off her backpack, and went and sat down at the piano and played until my mom told me to stop because Jeopardy was on and I was making too much noise. <laughs> <laughs> and she wanted to watch Jeopardy. Uh, 
have has have you been in a Jeopardy answer yet? Who was who just did? <laughs> oh no, no. Let's work on that. Oh uh, yeah, we will. <laughs> right. Note to self. Note to self. Okay. Um, and so then, you know, I I grew up in a small town in West Tennessee. Um, outside of Memphis, really, really small town, and I was the only kid I knew who did what I did. Um, I was far and away, and I, I don't say this in a in a, a boastful way, but I was the I was far and away the best pianist, certainly among the young people in my town, and possibly among anyone in my town, with the exception of my teacher. Uh, and and so I had a lot of opportunities, but they were small town opportunities. I played for my church. I uh, accompanied the choir at my high school. Um, when I was a little bit older, I got a job playing cocktail music at a local restaurant. Uh, just learning the skills of what it means to be a pianist and take requests and sight read and transpose, all the things that pianists have to do. But, but I felt like it wasn't enough. And so in high school, uh, I joined the marching band and I decided I wanted to learn how to play other instruments and I devoured them. So I really... I can say by the time I graduated, I knew how to play every instrument in the marching band. I, you know, I took wow. a semester and I learned how does this instrument work. I won't say I was good on all of them, but I was actually pretty competitive as a woodwind player. I played the clarinet and the flute and I learned the saxophone. But then uh, when it came time to have the marching band, the, the clarinetists did not get solos. And I looked and I was like, who gets the solos? Oh, the trumpet players get the solos and the mellophone <laughs> players get the solos. So I want to learn how to do that. So I learned the mellophone, which is the marching French horn. And then I got solos by my junior year. And, and so for me, it was like less about the instrument and more about the knowledge. Uh, and then when I was a senior in high school, I asked my band director if I could try to write something for the band. And, and I did. I wrote something and the, the band played it. And that was the beginning of me learning how instruments work together. And, and because I knew my way around the instruments, I was like, oh, this is going to be hard on the trombone or I'm not sure our flutist will be able to do that. I, was, I could write specifically for our ensemble. And, Not and to mention the fact that they were all marching at the same time <laughs> as playing. I mean. Right. It's, yeah, it's a skill. Um, and, and I think it, I just thought that's something that I would like to learn more about. I would like to do this. And around the same time, I was working in uh, Summerstock in a musical theater. Well, I guess this was in college. I was working in Summerstock in a musical theater um, company. And that, for my job there was playing the piano for all of the shows that happened over the course of a summer. And I just played all the different shows and I thought, somebody wrote this. You know, there we'd do Guys and Dolls and then we'd do an operetta and then we'd do Fan of the Opera. And I was like, all these different styles and who are the composers of these pieces and how, how does one become a composer of musical theater? And, uh, and I researched that and found the NYU Graduate School what is it, Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program, uh, where they accept playwrights and composers and lyricists and, and take the whole cohort through a two-year cycle, which you know I say is, is really a master's degree in collaboration more than anything mm -hmm. else. We, we didn't yeah. learn each other, we didn't learn how to do each other's disciplines, but we learned how to collaborate and how to make things together. And then I was a professional. <laughs> End of story. And, then I and graduated, our, and that was done. And, the, then I and our everything. audience and our audience cannot see that sort of like. And then I was a professional. <laughs> it's expressed so humbly, actually. I mean, um, wow, that's yeah. terrific. So, 
have, you know, because you've got all these facets of music, musicianship, composing, performing, directing, um, you know, the multi-hyphenate, as Susan says. Um, how, do that, how do they all fit together, I guess? You know, how do they ladder up to create... Because you said it was, you know, as a working musician, someone who wanted to pay the rent as a musician, you have to do all these things. Where, where do they overlap? How do they, how do they all fit together? And do you have a favorite? <laughs> do I have a favorite? Well, it's interesting. I think for this conversation, uh, my answer is, is more relevant than any other time I've said this. But the answer is, I think of myself as a musical dramatist. The, the organization that I belong to, I mean, there are several organizations, but the one that I'm referencing now is called the Dramatists Guild of America. And that is the organization that um, the professional, it's not a union, it's a guild, but it, uh, it functions to advocate for and provide services for composers, lyricists, and book rights and playwrights mm. in, the, in the theater, in the American theater. Uh, and, and I think of that term, dramatist, means people who dramatize stories, people who yeah. come up with stories and put them on stage, whether that is as a playwright or whether that is a, as a composer. Uh, and I'm, I'm the chair of the music committee at the Dramatist Guild, and one of the things we're working for is how do you, um, how do you make sure that composers who work in the theater feel like dramatists, feel like storytellers? <laughs> because I think it is easy to say, like, I play the piano, I put notes together in sequence, and so does that make me a storyteller? But to me, the way that you put the notes together in sequence and, and the way that you're using them to work in tandem with what the playwright is doing, what the director is doing, what the lighting designer is doing, what the actors are doing, is, is part of how you make an audience feel something. And yeah. that, is, that is what storytelling does. So to me, I think all of that is, all of those things are under the umbrella of being a musical dramatist. And so that, I would say that's my favorite thing. But the way that that manifests most clearly is as a composer. Yeah, I love That's that. That's my favorite. I, I think it's really interesting because to hear that there's the guild in the US, I don't think that's the case in the UK here. I think the disciplines are kept quite separate. And as someone who writes music for theatre, I feel very separate from the other art forms that are considered... <laughs> worthy of high value and I'm just the person that comes in and writes a couple of notes at the end and you know wow. does that it's, it's it's fascinating how the difference and I wonder I wonder if that's partly to do with the storytelling tradition particularly of musical theatre and music theatre is is so much part of the American fabric it it doesn't feel like that is in the UK that it's the I do think it you know I, I didn't mean for this to turn into such a plug for the dramatist guild but I do think it is the result of the work of the dramatist guild because of the way that they've prioritized ownership of music for theater artists uh you know a composer who writes for a play retains the copyright for yeah. for his or her own music and uh and and can monetize that in in numerous ways but if you write music for a film your your pay to fee and then the studio owns your music and so yeah. you you get paid more for sure but you have less of a sense it's a little bit more like i'm the person who came at the end and just wrote the music whereas when you are writing for the theater you feel very deeply invested in like this is my product i made it i own it i get to participate in the future of it um and i, I do think it's changed the way that we think about music uh and and its importance in storytelling and with that, with you working in a field that is so interdisciplinary, do you have a favorite type of collaborator? 
favorite type of collaborator. I like a smart collaborator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I oh think, um, you know, the, it was not told directly to me, but I think the lineage comes from the great director, Hal Prince, who said, make sure you're not the smartest person in the room. Mm. Make sure that you're collaborating with people who are smarter than you are because you want to you want to do your best work, but you also want to learn something from the experience and not not always be the one teaching everybody else. And of course, that's not true when you're the teacher in an education setting or something like yeah. that. But when you're creating a project, I like to make sure that I feel well matched, that uh, that my my collaborators are there to bring something to the project that I that I couldn't have brought myself. I have awesome. a collaborator. I, I've written a musical called Snow Child that's based on a, um, a novel called The Snow Child by the Alaskan author Aon Ivy. And um, it's set in Alaska in 1922. And, and the music of that place and that time is is a version of what we would call bluegrass music. You know, it's right. it's not exactly, you know, there's Americana and there are other names for it. But ultimately, the banjo, the mandolin, the fiddle, um, the upright bass, those, those instruments. And that's not, I mean, I did grow up in Tennessee, but that's not my background. I have a classical background. And so I was paired with a composer who lives in Alaska and is a self-taught musician. He plays the fiddle, he plays the mandolin. Uh, and and when we were paired together to talk about writing this music together, we didn't speak the same language. You know, I would say, oh, I think, you know, when we get to measure 47, we might want to modulate. And I know that's going to be tricky on the instrument. But and he was like, don't know that. I don't know those words that you're saying. <laughs> don't oh, understand so those words. Um, and we, you know, shared a couple bottles of wine and tried to figure out how we were going to communicate together. And I remember you know, he has, his name is Bob Banghart. He's a wonderful musician. He uh, has a background in mechanical engineering and a background in art history. And he curates art museums and builds, builds and curates art museums and, and plays music on the side. He's an expert musician, but very self-taught. And he drew a shape of a song on a cocktail napkin that was wow. like, like a graph this is I think it, it grows here and then this is the high point and then it, it, it descends I'm trying to describe it because your your listeners can't see what I'm doing with yeah. my hand uh, <laughs> and he said he said what are you talking where in the song are you talking about and I pointed to a spot and I said right here I think there's a key change right here and he said okay I understand and then he did it and we we're like okay we have a language that's not the language that I learned at Vanderbilt or at NYU but that was the language that allowed us to write this show and That's and he's one of my favorite collaborators now that now that we figured that out. And I think just for the storytelling of this moment, the purpose is like at the very beginning, I had a moment of like, oh, he's not smart. He's not smart because he doesn't know the words that I know. I'm going to have to educate him. And it wasn't long until I was put in check and I thought, oh, he's very, very smart. <laughs> I have a lot to learn from him. I have to learn his words. And meeting in the middle was was very helpful and very humbling. Um, and I, I love the piece that we have been able to make together. That's fantastic. And we can't wait to see it produced. Mm. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> okay, another note to self. Um, Georgia, we met at an amazing, um, I'll call it a concert. It, 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 it was a, a series of performances that were held at the 92nd Street Y, a cultural center in New York, part of their lyrics and lyricist series and it was called Miss you co-produced it with your frequent collaborator the amazing musical theater performer Kate Baldwin 
And in myths, the two of you essentially documented the role of women in musical theater as composers and lyricists from, I think it was around the 1930s through to the present. Um, you, you revealed these stories about these pioneering women so in such an engaging manner, and you 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 produced with along with a series of performers the songs that they contributed to the musical theater canon, and um, and you really brought to life what these women meant in the history of American musical theater. And I sat there shamefaced about all the stories that I didn't know about these amazing women. Um, what I mean, isn't that always the case when we, we tell the stories that haven't been told before, whether it's women's stories or people of color, or like the American history or British history or whatever, the history that we learned in school with, with the highlights. And then as we grow older, we start to realize how many of the stories weren't told. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And the, and the fact that you and Kate took the time to make this incredibly important piece happen, particularly in this time, I think was, was uh, it was very significant to me. But was there, was there something in your experience as what the passport says as a musician <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that prompted you to want to tell these stories? Um, I have such a long answer to that question. That's <laughs> I mean, quite all right. Yeah. <laughs> the, there's so much that prompted me to want to tell these stories, but the step that's missing is, uh, you know, let's see, how do I even begin? Um, I, I have been working for years now uh, to try to illuminate the work of women, women and non-binary people who work in the theater and, uh, the, the origin story for this particular line of my work is that I in, in my music directing career, I was offered uh, an opportunity to music direct an, an off-Broadway show, a Sweet Charity revival in 2016. And our director, Lee Silverman, asked my collaborators and I to hire an all-female band because she was telling a version of Sweet Charity that uh, that 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 really leaned into a gender dichotomy of when, when Charity was out in the world looking for a boyfriend, she put on one kind of personality, and then when she was safe in the dressing room with the women where she worked as a dance hall hostess, she she let down her guard and she had a different way of of behaving and of speaking. And so a lot of her internal numbers happen in the dressing room where she's surrounded just by women, and the band was going to be visible on stage, and she said, I think it's important that we're creating that safe space of what she's like with women. And I thought, I've never had a dramaturgical reason to hire people, <laughs> to hire musicians, <laughs> but okay. Uh, and so my, my orchestrator, Mary Mitchell Campbell, and I set out to hire, it was really five musicians that we had to hire that the, the task was they had to be female and they couldn't all be white. And so she was like, that's the world that I wanna build. And it was really, really, really hard to find those women. Um, wow. By the time we did find them, we had we had been through we'd had conversations with very 
various music contractors in the UK. They're called fixers, the people that like the middle, mm-hmm. the managers that help you find the musicians. And um, and most of them were like, yeah, it turns, I don't really know any women guitarists or, you know, yeah. all the drummers that I recommend are men. As if as if we were bringing to the surface their own biases and, and had to had to acknowledge our ours as well. Um, that many of the people that were on our first call lists were our boys. We just called our guys, and th- that was the band that we often put together. Uh, and when I finally found those women, um, I had this enormous spreadsheet of, like, this one, and this is her contact information, but she's not available for this reason, and this one, you know, whatever, uh, isn't a member of the union, or all the reasons why that person couldn't work. But, but I had a wealth of information, and I thought, I'm going to be the keeper of this information unless I figure out how to share it. And I built a website. I, I thought this was going to be a very small project. I built a website, and I just put the information, the names, and the, I, I don't remember whether I put people's emails, addresses, or not, but I put the information on a website, and I was like, these women play these instruments and stop telling me that they don't exist because they exist. <laughs> and that kind of went crazy. People responded to it, and thank you for this information, and can I jo- add my name to the list? And so it turned into a database, which then turned into a, a fully fledged website. And then eventually we started to build programming. We, meaning my friends and I, started building programming around it. And ultimately, it has, it has now, six years later, turned into a fully fledged not for profit organization called Maestra Music. And we have a website, maestramusic.org, with a directory at the center of it. The directory has 1,700, over 1,700 maestro members in it women and non-binary people who work all over the world in these these music jobs and I'm getting to the answer to your question which is one of the things (laughs) that we did when we built this was I asked um, a music historian that I knew if she would build a timeline um, like let's look at Wikipedia together and let's find the women because there are not many non-binary people in history, but the women in history who have written music for musical theater shows that were produced on Broadway. Um, Because I don't know that that's ever been told. When we talk about women in musical theater history, we often list uh, the lyricists and the choreographers and sometimes the costume designers and the directors, but even the directors are limited. But but I was like, I'm not even sure I can think of more than one or two composers. And as we built the timeline, uh, and really searched Wikipedia and like followed this lead down that path. And uh, it, it became clear that there was this enormous gap in musical theater history. In the early 1900s, there are women who could, you know, a lot of what was on Broadway were reviews. Like you would think of in the Irving Berlin era, era or the, um, the Garrick Gaieties or things like that, the pre-1920s shows where almost vaudeville on Broadway were a woman might have contributed a song or a husband and wife team might have written their song together and so the woman has credit for it and that. And then in 1931, there was a woman named Kay Swift. She was a contemporary of George Gershwin's and she wrote the entire score to a musical called Fine and Dandy. And then there was nothing for 20 years until Mary Rogers came along in the 50s. And then there was nothing again for 20 years until the 1970s when women, you know, when uh, Mickey Grant and uh, Carol Hall, and there are a number of women who started working in that time, Elizabeth Suedos. And, and I was like, what is the story of that gap? Where are those women? Where are they? In like the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1940s, that's what we call the golden era of theater. 
and there are no women. There were women mm-hmm. working as dance arrangers and vocal arrangers and rehearsal pianists, but they weren't composers. So, I mean, I've just given you the, the beginning of a lecture and, and, and half of the dialogue of the show of Miss <laughs> that you were asking about. But, but that where are the women question has, has, has been plaguing me for years. And, and I think the reason that Kate Baldwin and I wrote the show is, is to show, like the directory, they were there they were just not being produced at the Broadway level. And so then we can we can start to dig into all the societal and political reasons why that might have been the case. But it's not that they weren't there. Mm. Susan told me about the event and it sounded like a like a college level course in this alternative history. And I, I think what's interesting is I'm seeing more or reading more and hearing more about these alternative histories that aren't really alternative at all. They were just been perhaps suppressed is there's a really interesting book out at the moment about the story of art as told through the lens of women making art throughout this whole history and we're just not seeing it how how do you feel it is now i mean i i as, as we discussed earlier i'm i'm a graduate of uh, the the uk equivalent of bmi and if i think about it i, I was listening to you thinking oh well, yeah, there's, there were loads of women on the on the program it's fantastic and i think no they're all lyricists Right. There are, they are mostly lyricists. There are maybe two or three women out of our advanced group who are composers, and everybody else is, is lyricists. That's, well, how do you feel it is now in terms of parity? Are we getting there? <laughs> I think we're getting there. And I have to say, like, patting not just myself, but patting my organization, which now has mm. a, a staff and a board and, you know, lots of people involved. Like, I think the work that we're doing is, is addressing that problem. Yeah. I, you know, a couple years ago, I have a friend who's a voice teacher uh, in New York City, and she had trained a singer all through high school, and then the singer went off to college. And the singer was now a sophomore, second year in college, um, where it was time to declare her major. And she was expressing, she was still taking voice lessons, you know, when she came home for holiday breaks in the summer. She's still taking voice lessons with my friend. And she expressed to my friend that she felt like she was having a dilemma. She wanted to be a composition major, but she probably was going to major in voice. And my friend, the voice teacher, said, well, why? Why wouldn't you go into composition? And she said, all of the teachers are male. All of the other students are male. I don't want to be the only one. I think yeah. that's a really hard way to go. And so I'll just write on the side, and I'll, you know, but I just don't know that I want to set myself up for that experience. And I... In that case, I happened to know the teacher, you know, the, I knew right. the teacher. And so I sent him an email and I said, I want to know, I want you to know that this is happening. I want you to know that we have a young woman who is thinking about majoring in composition and doesn't feel safe. And when I say safe, I don't mean that she's going to be attacked. I just mean That's not about that. It's, a hard lo- it's a hard road to constantly yeah. be advocating for something that is so different from every other person who is having the same experience that you're having. Um, And he said, who is it? And I said, it doesn't matter who it is. I'm not going to tell you who it is. What are you going to do about it? So that's my answer to, like, we have to change the infrastructure that, that make, not just, not just that makes women feel welcome, but that makes, that, that breaks down the, this, homogeneity of this is this is what a composer looks like this is what a composer this is who a composer is 
but uh, and a lot of the work that Maestro's doing on our social media is just constantly putting out images of women composers and women conductors and women songwriters and then also data and also you know but celebrating the women who do it so that some future composer can chance across this gallery of photos and say oh there is a place for me I, yeah. I belong there there are people like me I don't have to be the only one fantastic and and if I can say, you know, Miss was a night of entertainment. Oh, I'm glad you said that, because when you said it was a college lecture, I was like, oh, no, no, I'll never <laughs> sell that. No, 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 it, 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 I came away feeling like, man, I, I, I learned so much. I, I learned so much, but I came away feeling completely uplifted and, and entertained, and, and you told the story that has this undercurrent of this is what we have to fix in the industry in a completely non-didactic way. You 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 really you and Kate really pulled together these stories. I, I came away excited and and then electrified about what still needs to happen. And I think one of the one of the things that always impacted me was when Janine Tesori accepted yeah. the Tony as she and at Lisa Crohn, the first duo to receive the Tony for, it was um, music and lyrics, right? They wrote I music and lyrics for Fun Home. Correct. And, uh, and they were the first all-female team, writing team to win the Tony Award for, for that show. Uh, there mm. are other, Lucy Simon and Marsha Norman wrote The Secret Garden, but they didn't win a Tony Award for it. So mm. I think that's... That's how the history unfolds. Right. Yeah. And Janine but, said, I think what you're yeah. referencing is Janine in her speech said a line that now has become like a, a warrior call for our community. She said, for girls, you have to see it to be it. Yeah. And just the idea that like if there is no representation, how can we believe that there's a path for us? Um, and Janine was, you know, Janine is like a few steps ahead of me in her career. She was that person for me. I, you know, what my very first job as a professional right out of graduate school was I was a music assistant on a project at the Goodspeed Musical and Janine was the composer. And, you know, I was, I was really like, for musicians who are listening, I was learning Finale, which is the software that we all use to input <laughs> our music, to notate our music. And um, I was like learning it and, and telling my bosses that I knew how to do it, but coming home and reading the <laughs> manual at night, you know. That's <laughs> uh, how you do it. <laughs> that's how you do it. Can you do this? The answer is yes. And then you learn. <laughs> the answer is always, you say yes if you can learn it in time. <laughs> yeah. um, but but Janine was composing the music and I was putting it into finale and I was assisting the team and playing piano and rehearsals and all. And so that was what I must have been 23 or 24 years old. And I think the fact that she was the composer on one of my first professional shows must have been yeah. transformative for me. You know, I didn't grow up with the lack of representation because Janine was there. It's right. interesting. Also, the, the very fact you're saying that you said yes I know how to use that and then went away and learned it there's a study that says actually women don't do that men do it men because we've been perhaps educated or we've, we've had the privilege to said yeah you know you can just try it go and be a trier but women don't naturally or sorry have been educated into this position where they don't say yeah I can do it and then try it and well, that's let's I, guess we'll I agree well let's think about what happens to men when they fail when they fail and then let's think about what happens to women mm -hmm. when they fail and and women 
don't want to set themselves up for I mean justifiably don't want to set themselves yeah. up for that kind of shame or public humiliation or lack of the next opportunity and I think um, you know we talk about that too in, in mentorship and in uh, all the conversations about the pipeline that you can't just you can't just build the directory that says here are the women who exist you also have to build programming that sets them up for success so that when they walk in the room they feel like they can be successful for exactly the reason that you've described because they're less likely to say oh yeah I got this yeah. knowing they might risk and not have it and then never work again or whatever the fear, however the fear manifests. Yeah. Wow. Um. <laughs> we got deep. I have to say, no, I, I, I was just reflecting on your comment, Susan, about um, you were educated but entertained. And that's so much of what we're trying to get across to our clients is, you know, can't if you're just trying to lecture who, who's listening who's paying attention if you can bring joy and emotion and use story to connect with an audience and they leave educated that's going to stick isn't it it's going to you know susan felt like she had to go out and start waving the flag which is fantastic <laughs> she's a convert but i do think the best speakers that you've ever heard are storytellers yeah. i mean i think that must be exactly what your mission is here is to tell is to illuminate that in so many ways but we think about public speakers anytime you've been in a room with a great speaker you know i i certainly have had experiences where i think well, that person is speaking directly to me and i'm in a room of a great number of people and I think, does everyone in the room feel like they're being spoken to directly? And, and probably the answer is yes, because that's the tactic of the speaker is to, you know, in, in theater writing, we're taught that the more, if you want to make a point, a, a general point that speaks to a great audience, you have to be very specific in the storytelling, right? Hooray. So if, if I have a... <laughs> we like, go, yes! Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Yes, yeah, so true. Yes. That's what playwriting is like. If yeah. I write a play about... a, You know, I was working with a student recently who had an idea of her play, and she was like, the, the character's name is... I'm, I don't remember, but let's say the character's name is Jan. And Jan can be... She could be Asian, or she could be black, or she could be white, or she could be, you know, anything. And but anyway, we'll, we'll solve that. But uh, but Jan, and I was like, how could you even begin to write Jan if you don't have a specific idea of who Jan is? What is her voice? Where did she go to college? Where does she live? Does she have a partner? Does she have a pet? Like the the more specific you can be about this character, then then the more truthful the things will be that come out of the character's mouth, and then the more the more truthful the storytelling can be and the audience can be like, oh my gosh, I know Jan. I know someone like Jan, as opposed to like the vague archetype of some human who happens to have the name Jan. <laughs> I was wondering if, if you feel that musically, when you're using music as a storytelling device, as you do, is it the same thing? You know, do you go for a specific sound or a specific tone to, to tell a generic or gen a general story? I do think you have to be as specific as possible. I think the trick with music is people bring their own associations to music. Yeah. And so, like, if you, you know, if you decide to put doo-wop in a music and you have the background singers going doo-wop, shoo-bee, doo-bee, doo-wop, then the audience automatically goes to the early 1960s yeah. and they're thinking about the Supremes or they're thinking about, like, and so there's so much 
work that's done in terms of time, a place, and their own memory of something that that music makes them think of, and and that you're bringing all of that into the story when mm. you choose to write in a particular style of music. And so, I mean, any style of music, if you're choosing not to write pop music, but you're gonna write something very, let's say, classical, then, then audiences have their own association with that too, yeah. and they remember you know, their relationship to piano lessons or that time they got sick at a symphony concert or like whatever, you can't know those things. But the um, music definitely does a lot of work of bringing the audience into a place. And so I think for me, the specificity that we're talking about is about making sure that the music that you're choosing is is setting up the same world that the words and the characters are, that you're not creating something that ultimately competes with the story that's being told, but you're you're, you're telling the same story musically that your collaborators are telling with words. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. Well, look, we we could I, I could talk to you for, for hours, <laughs> I'm sure, uh, but I'm not allowed to. Uh, <laughs> so we we um, we generally finish our podcast asking the same question, which is, do you have a favorite story? It can be anything. It could be a, you know one of your performances or a piece of music or. You know any of the hats that you wear it can be funny it can be serious what do you have a favorite story and would you share it with us a favorite story oh my goodness well it's a hard um, question right it is a hard <laughs> question i'm like which direction shall i go um i'll say this is a i'll, I'll say this is on in the inspirational story start uh category um when I, I, you know, earlier I told you that I was the girl who came home from school and threw off her backpack and wanted to play the piano. And, and I was that girl for a long time. And then somewhere in my teenage years, I think I started to feel like I was missing out on a social life and there were other kids doing fun things and I, I wasn't able to do them. Um, and do I really want to be a pianist for my life? And, um, and I told my mom that I was going to quit. I don't, I'm not interested in doing this anymore. This isn't who I want to be. Uh, <laughs> and as a parent now, I think, oh boy, she must have <laughs> just switched gears and gone right into like, all right, what is the good parenting response to this in, in the moment? But she said to me, um, the way your piano lessons work is we start in the fall. And there's a season, like you, you go through the fall, you do a, a holiday December recital, and then you had in the spring, we do a spring recital, and there was always a competition. My teacher was a member of the, it was, I don't even know, the guild, the like the National Guild of Piano Teachers or something, and all of her students went, and we did guild. We performed at guild, and it was a thing where you played the piano for a panel of judges, and you got scored, and it reflected on you, how well you did at the guild, and it reflected on the teacher, how well her students did at the guild, and my mom said, we've committed to this for the year and you have to keep taking lessons until we get through Guild because that's the, it's bigger than just you. Um, and so you can quit in June, but you can't quit now. And I was like, <laughs> but by the time I got through the Guild, I didn't want to quit anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and there was something about pushing through the hard part the fear that I was missing out, the part, there probably was some element of like, I don't like this piece I'm playing or it's too hard or I'm never gonna get it or, you know. And, and what I learned by, the, by June, by the time that I was allowed to quit, is that I had, I had actually felt pride and success in getting over that hump. And, and then I, I must have done well at Guild and gotten a good reward and then I wanted to keep going. And it, 
I think of it as a life-changing moment. If she had said, okay, you can quit, I would have. And and then what would I be doing for a living? I wouldn't be here on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I think thank you, mom. Thank yeah. you, mom. She's super mom. She's a wonderful mom. And and I now I'm raising two daughters, and I I think about that too. Like, what's the what's the higher value in this moment? Is it, you know, I'm sure in that mom, moment my mother was like, I don't actually care whether you become a professional pianist or not. I just care that you're a person who honors her commitments, a person who respects. The, t- the investment the teacher has made, you know, all of those things are more important. And so we're going to get through that. And, and then it can be about you. And I think that that is a lesson I've tried to keep with me forever. Wonderful. Wow. <sighs> Georgia, thank you so very, very much. I wear a necklace that my daughter made for me, and it says, indebted to you. And Simon and I are very indebted to you for being a guest on the podcast and we can't wait please where can we sign up for news about snow child (laughs) uh well i mean i'm not very prolific but i do have uh through my website which is georgiestit.com i do have a newsletter that goes out really once or twice a year but anytime there's a big announcement i put it there or on various social media platforms um there it's uh, we like to say it's in development we've gone back to the (laughs) we did a production at arena stage in washington dc that was beautiful and had puppets and magic and and Mm. that instrumentation that um that bluegrass instrumentation and there are some videos on youtube if you want to look on my youtube channel georgia stint music you can see some videos of snow child uh but in terms of its future life i I think we have to get through the rewrite first and then figure out where we're going next (laughs) life is rewriting Always, (laughs) always. Well, thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for having me. This was a pleasure. I hope it's. I hope the stories are illuminating and that and helpful to your audience. Definitely. (laughs) I mean, that was that was quite Uh, thrilling for me. Well, it was thrilling for us. Yeah. Assuredly, and you know, actually, it got me thinking about. When we started this, you know, our grand experiment was, could we have conversations with non-business people, Mm. with playwrights, with, you know, authors, with scientists, and would they have relevant things to say to our business audience about narrative story and storytelling? And wow, uh, yet again, do we have an example of <clears throat> that hypothesis being proven true? <laughs> um, and, and you know, Georgia, who, well, she, she's just wonderful, in my opinion. She serendipitously came up with themes that we've heard again and again. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. It, it, absolutely. And, you know, the first one of those is, our good old friend specificity, which I have learned to say. I'm pleased. God, <laughs> that's great. I mean, that's we've heard great. it again and again. It's just that idea that the best speakers, the best presenters, the best playwrights, whatever, composers are speaking to a specific audience and telling a specific story. They're not telling a generic or general story. And their audience, they don't believe when they're telling it, isn't a generic audience. They're speaking to someone. <laughs> You know, it, it keeps coming back. But I think it's so right. important. I'd right. also like, in sort of tied in with that, the fact that um, she she talked about the juxtaposition of of through, I guess, that specificity that as well as being entertaining, you can be educational, and that 
the narrative you're sharing about your brand whilst of course it needs to be i mean she didn't say this but this is what we're, we're interpreting it of course it needs to be facts-based um it has to be delivered in an engaging way it has to exactly. it has to make people lean in and sit up or sit up and and, and pay attention right. um and so oh, I tell think, me more is what you, <laughs> what you want your yeah. audience to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the problem, half the problem as well as language being perhaps dull is that people are too afraid to get specific and therefore they don't achieve that entertaining, engaging messaging. Right, right. You know, actually, I loved her her first story where she where she talked about her passport listing her <laughs> occupation yeah. as musician. You know, and then she t told the story about, and then I became a professional. But in between, she talked about having to learn a lot of things. You know, playing, learning how to play a lot of instruments, not because she was going to play them, but because she could know that a certain piece of music was going to showcase a particular instrument or it mm. might be difficult for another section of the orchestra to play a certain piece of music but the idea of really knowing things mm -hmm. you know you can say our company does this but if you don't really you don't know the business problems if you don't yeah. it, it, that your your company can theoretically solve for you're you don't really know how to play that music Right. And, yeah. you know, I, I think that we hear it again and again with our clients. They don't take the time necessarily to truly understand how their service is going to help clients overcome an obstacle. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that descriptor for, for Georgia was musician. Mm -hmm. Right. But it can be. You name the service provision, the service provider. You can say we're an accountant, we're we're a lawyer, we're we're a, a, a marketing consultant, whatever. Yeah. The backstory is the core competence. Core competencies. Mm -hmm. Another word I can't pronounce. <laughs> um, you need to amass the skills. You need to literally understand the music of your client yeah. in order to be able to know how you can be differentiated and how you're going to help them solve that problem. So yeah, you can have the overarching descriptor, but there's a backstory of how you have really understood the client well the enough customer. to actually earn the right to be their service yeah. provider. Yeah, absolutely. So. And I guess the other theme that again came up comes up again and again is this idea of collaboration um right. but i think i think georgia had a really interesting take on it and i com i completely i completely related to this this story about her collaborator on snow child and this idea of overcoming her biases the way she sort of sees the world and her experience as up to that moment as a composer as a professional musician and the way she saw the other person who was coming from a completely different world who was her collaborator and if she didn't let go of some of that stuff right. they wouldn't have been able to collaborate and so she had to engage with humility and recognize that whilst this other person doesn't have the same uh, background or training that I do it doesn't it doesn't mean that their training and background or even lack of training is any less 
worthy. And actually, the combination of the two of us in this case, and I guess that's with you know most theatre, in my experience anyway, it's it's about all these people coming together. That's what makes it special, makes it right. effective. And and we may have been looking at this certainly in our conversation with Georgia through our lens, our mutual lens around theater. But again, mm. what what strikes me is a lot of people talk about collaboration, but they approach it as a hierarchical, yeah. um, you know, sport, right? And and in and instead of um, imposing those biases around, well, I know this to be true. Blending core competencies, so you ultimately get to, if this is not too banal a, a description, one plus one equals ten, right? <laughs> and and that's what we ultimately hope to gain from collaboration. And I think she illustrated it really, well, really beautifully. I, I think also it speaks to the idea of inclusion, that if we don't have diverse partners and collaborators, then we don't achieve as interesting a result. We're missing out on stuff if we close exactly. things off. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a big business takeaway. You know, there are right. different ways to come to a story. There are different ways to shape it and to share it effectively. Yeah, and solving the big problems are going to take those diverse voices. Yeah, absolutely. So. Well... Yeah another great episode yes very yeah. exciting and we have a few few more in the the pipeline that are equally um well equally tantalizing yeah so in the meantime if you'd like to get in touch you can find information about iambic creative or griffin's gags collaborative in the show notes we'd love to talk to you um, and see what your story challenges and marketing problems and design problems are and we'd love to help you resolve them we surely would and until next time yes and thanks bye. for listening yeah absolutely as always bye bye